if you'll keep those Bibles open and turn over to the New Testament. We introduced last week our sermon series on the book of Titus, and we looked at the first four verses of the book of Titus. And as we enter into this second sermon of our uh, new sermon series, A Blueprint for the Healthy Church, uh, we have to understand that the book of Titus actually tackles something that we might call ecclesiology. That's how we would reference it in a seminary classroom, and it simply means the study of a church, or study of the church. And, And as we think about the study of the church and what makes a healthy church, and what the blueprints for building healthy churches are like, we must understand that Titus gives us some very clear instructions so that we might have, as God commanded us in Genesis 1 and 2, dominion over the world. Not only do we uh, have dominion over all of God's creation by the progress and the multiplication of covenant families, but we have the opportunity to have dominion over the whole world by simply church planting. And you know something of church planting because our church has been uh, participants and supporters of churches being planted up and down the, the southeast. You can even look in our bulletin right now and see that we're financially and prayerfully supporting churches uh, throughout the southeast even this year. But one of the greatest things about the Presbyterian Church in America, our denomination, is that they have been very faithful to plant churches. And you think, well, why is it that we put an emphasis on church planting? Well, simply it's because we have a sin-filled world that needs more churches. That is what Paul is instructing Titus to be about here on this island of Crete. As we introduced the letter even last week, we talked about how sin-filled this island really was. They were full of debauchery. They were full of sexual immorality. They were full of deceit and crime. Even their own citizens, as we see in verse 12 of chapter 1 of Titus, calls them liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That is the context in which Titus is a is to be about, is to labor in. And and what would you do if you were Titus? Well, I know what I would probably do, or at least my sinful inclination would want to do. I'd want to get in the boat and leave. Go to an easier context. And yet, it's this sin-filled world in which Paul says, the way that we're going to work, the way that we're going to labor here, is by planting churches. And not just any old churches, We're going to plant churches with qualified, godly, sober-minded, stable men called elders. And that's exactly what uh, is happening here within our text. We're going to focus on verses 5 and 6, this appointment of godly elders. But for the sake of context, I want to go ahead and read some of the qualifications that will begin uh, Lord willing, next week preaching through. So let's read verses 5 through 9 of Titus chapter 1, focusing in on verses 5 and 6. May we hear God's word, for it's right and it's good and it is for us. 
This is why I left you in Crete, Paul writes, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, again, we have to remember the church planning efforts are happening right in the middle of a sin-filled island with something like 157, 160 cities or villages that exist on the island. And, and Titus's mission, the reason in which Paul has left Titus here upon this island is so that he might plant churches, as he says, in every city so that the word of the Lord might go forth. Now, not only was this a sin-filled city, main city or island as we speak generally. This wasn't just a, a sin-filled island because they were full of debauchery and, and sexual immorality and thievery and lying and, and laziness and gluttony. No, this was a sin-filled island because they were practicing polytheism, what we would say is the worship of many gods. See, the Cretans actually believed that Zeus, that great Greek mythological god, was born on their island. In fact, they think that he was buried on the island as well. But not only is there Greek, Greek mythology, but there is Roman gods being worshipped, deities being worshipped. There is Jewish legalism being practiced, as we see in verse 14 of chapter 1. And we know that there are real believers in Christ that live here on the island. And so it's something of a, a religious hodgepodge, you might say. It, it is full of people who worship many gods, and there in the middle of the island, in the midst of the cities, is this remnant, if we use Old Testament language. A remnant of, of God's people that exist here within these sin-filled, idolatrous cities. And Titus is told, go into these cities and set into order these churches. Now, as almost like a rabbit trail of sorts, you have to understand that what Paul is calling Titus to do is some principles that we need to we need to learn for our lives, I think. Because we can look around at, at our culture, our society, our nation, and we can get quite pessimistic, can't we? And we can actually see how difficult it might be to be Christians here, even in the glories of America. And yet, God does His work in the midst of heathenistic places. 
He does His work in the midst of sin-filled cultures and countries and cities. He does not call His people uh, to, to re, you know, relocate, you might say. He doesn't call His people to relocate to, to easier contexts. He simply demands from them transformation and holiness so that they can impact their cities. So that they can be light into the dark places. What we actually see, like stories in Nehemiah or Daniel or Joseph, is that God actually calls us to live godly lives in the midst of very godless places. And and we need to hold on to those principles. Because it's those principles that will be somewhat of an anchor for Titus as he begins to appoint these elders within these cities on the island of Crete. In in fact, if you look at verse 5, and I hope that you'll keep your Bible open because we're going to jump over to Acts chapter 20 here in just a few moments. But here in verse 5, as Paul says, I left you in Crete to set into order what remains. He will hold on to those foundational principles that as I labor according to the commands of God, according to the commission of the Apostle Paul, God can do a great work here in Crete. That I can be a very godly man and I can appoint godly elders even in a sin-filled culture like Crete. And I can understand that God's not calling me to relocate to another city, to another island, to an easier context. No, He is calling on me to labor faithfully so that not only can people be transformed, but maybe even, Lord willing, the city might be transformed. And this island might be transformed. And so what we see here is we're setting in order these churches that already exist and these new churches that will be established. Paul is wanting, is wanting Titus to literally, if we were Greek scholars and we were to scratch at this, to put into order what remains literally says to straighten things out. To straighten things out. Now, what we'll understand as we journey through this letter to Titus from the Apostle Paul is there are a lot of things that need to be straightened out within the churches. There there is false ideologies, false teachings. There's bad attitudes concerning work. There's, There's disordered church government, irreverent worship happening within the churches. There is not sound doctrine being preached. There is no respect and submission. These are common themes, it seems, throughout all of Paul's letters. But the first thing that he must do, the first thing that he must do is appoint godly men to be elders. And why is that? Well, it's it's actually the reasons given to us right there in verse 9. These godly elders must be highly esteemed men, must be stable, sober-minded men, must be men who are full of knowledge according to the Scriptures, they are the ones that must be set forth as leaders within the church so that they might hold firm to what is uh, trustworthy, the trustworthy word that's been taught, so that they might be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and so that they might rebuke those who contradict it. 
See, all the glaring issues in these churches in the island of Crete have to be addressed by a plurality of elders. And that's something that the, that the church must understand. That we have a plurality of eldership. Most of the time in other denominations we'll call the pastor something like the minister of word and sacrament. And then you'll have the ruling elders almost establishing a, a three office view of church government. It does not seem to me that, that the Apostle Paul holds to that position. You see, Titus is going to be the primary preacher of these churches that are being established and these churches that are being straightened out. But in each and every city, he is to appoint other elders, other elders to come alongside of him. And so there's a plurality of eldership that exists within this context, within this, this church or these churches. And so what we have here before us is something like the PCA has. We have the, the, the elder who, or the elders whose primary duty is to teach and to preach. And then when we have the, the other elders whose primary position, their position is to rule. And so it's not pastor versus elder. No, it's elders and deacons. And specifically here, specifically here, Paul is talking about the appointment, the raising up of godly elders to execute ministry within the local churches. Well, as Titus strikes out to do this, he knows something of the pattern of eldership that exists from the Apostle Paul. This is where I want you to flip over to Acts chapter 20. And if you flip over to Acts chapter 20, you might know that this is the scene in which Paul is saying his goodbyes to the elders at Ephesus. And he sets forth a pattern of ministry for these elders and then gives them a commission in verses 17 through 27. Actually, the commission comes later on, verses 28 through 38. But in verses 17 through 27, he's given us a little bit of, of a pattern of ministry for these elders to execute, specifically in this context, the elders at Ephesus. But this is going to be the pattern that Titus knows and he will use to establish elders within the local churches in the island of Crete. And so if you look at verses 17, it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him and when they came to him, he said to them, here is the pattern of ministry. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in that every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. 
but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace to, of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so he sets forth a, a, a pattern of ministry that I want you to notice. And, and there's six kind of points to this pattern of ministry. And very quickly, we'll run through them. The first one, of course, is humility. He says that I was full of humility from the moment that I stepped foot in Asia. And so he is declaring that the elder must be humble in their duties for the local church. He goes on in verse 24 to explain, in order that I may finish my course and the ministry in which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Remember what we said last week. That Titus and these elders that are being appointed in every city of this island, they are servants under the Most High God. They are bond servants. They only are to obey the Master. And so Paul says elders like himself must be humble in their diligence to obey the Lord God Almighty who has established this office of elder, who has called these elders to, to function within the local church, to lead the local church. But he also says that he has done this in tears or with tears. You see, the second thing, this pattern of ministry is that serving the Lord will cost you something. It will cost you something. See, here it is that Paul, we actually see a great glimpse into the emotional life of Paul here within this section of God's Word. He is emotionally and affectionately involved in this ministry. He's not a mere professional. He doesn't go in like a CEO. He goes in like a shepherd. And so he labors amongst the people. He has affection for the people. He knows their people. A commentator says, as Paul clearly points out here, he's going from house to house to minister, which means that he's eating with them. He's talking with them. He's playing with their children. He knows his people. And he is emotionally and affectionately involved in his people. But the third one is that there's a real suffering not only are there tears of emotional involvement, but there is suffering to be experienced when we are in the ministry of Christ as elders. He speaks in verse 19 of this plot that the Jews had against him, and he understands that the eldership is the front lines of fighting the enemy. The enemy being Satan himself. And so it's totally reversed of what we would think that the elder might do. The elder who leads will sit upon his throne and watch his military forces go out into battle. That is not the picture of biblical eldership. 
The picture of biblical eldership is that the elders stand on the front lines of the battle and they will take the blows first before their people will. They will protect, they will fight for their people. And Paul says, I have done that. And fourthly, he says that he's done that with no impartiality. He says it didn't matter who they were, Jews or Greeks, I preached the same gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must repent and believe. And fifthly, he says that he, that he did not burden the church at Ephesus with any sort of financial responsibility. You see, this church of Ephesus was young, infant, in stage, and so they could not afford to pay him a, a minister's wage. And so he said, I did it all for free. I made tents in the midst of the day so that I might preach the gospel in the midst of the night. It's that same thing that he said to the Thessalonian church, that he was so committed to the call that he did what he had to do to make ends meet so that he might preach where God had called him to preach. And then sixthly and and finally, he says, when God calls me to preach somewhere... If you look at uh, verse 27, when God calls me to preach somewhere, I'm going to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Your translation might say the whole purpose of God, the redemptive purpose of God, the whole counsel of God. I preach the entire word to you. I preach the promises of old in the person and work of Jesus. I preached the gospel in which I knew of the person and work of Jesus. And I told you how on the road to Damascus that I met this person of Jesus and He has done a tremendous work upon me as a sinner. And so I took the gospel into these churches and I did not hold back one iota of what the Word declared. I preach the truth of God. And that is what the elder must be about as well. They cannot lead for any sort of personal gain, but they must lead in service, in servanthood. And they cannot shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Do you think that Paul there in Ephesus, do you think that Titus, as we move back over to Titus chapter 1, is going to receive a a glowing endorsement for everything that he says as he calls out their sexual immorality? As he calls out their laziness and their gluttony? As he calls out their debauchery? No. And yet, he did not shrink back. The elder of the local church cannot shrink back in fear, but he must boldly declare the whole truth about God. Remember what's said there in verse 9. He must be able to teach sound instruction and also at the same time, he must be able to rebuke. Go to battle against false doctrine. And that is the ministry pattern that's set forth within, within this local church. And that's the same ministry pattern that that Titus will will use to train these elders. But before he can even train them, what must he do? He must see if they're qualified. And again, Lord willing, 
we'll move into these qualifications next week found for us in verses 7, 8, and 9. But there's some, some observations, right, that come with just simply reading these qualifications. And I want to point out to you very quickly some of these observations. The first observation I see is that these qualifications have nothing to do with a man's pre-conversion character. What we're concerned about as we gauge the qualifications of a man who is put forth to the office of elder, we are looking to see if he is spiritually mature. If he is spiritually mature. If he has walked faithfully with Christ, he is now fit to spiritually lead. It has nothing to do with his pre-conversion character. You think about the Apostle Paul who even writes these words. He was the chief of sinners, right? Putting to death those who believed upon the Lord Jesus. And after he met Christ, he was radically changed. That's what we're looking for. The men who have experienced a radical change of the Almighty God who are now His children's sons under the Most High God and now able to spiritually walk in faithfulness with God. And so we're looking at post-conversion faithfulness. That's the first two observations that I see. It's not anything to do with pre-conversion character. It has everything to do with post-conversion faithfulness. And we're looking at something qualitative, not quantitative. You know, one of the things that, that's so often said to me during our officer training sessions because I have them gauge themselves, one through ten on a scale, of all the qualifications that are before us in God's Word, where do you find yourself? One through ten. And I say, well, if you come in with all tens, you're a liar. And you're disqualified. <laughs> but, truly gauge yourself. What you'll see is no one if we are to take these qualifications as quantitative, no one is able able to be an officer of the church. But if they are pursuing faithfulness, if they are pursuing faithfulness, if their hearts are devoted to God, that's what we're looking for. You think about the, the illustration of the Apostle Peter, right? The Apostle Peter that we judge so harshly for denying Christ three times on the night of Christ's betrayal and false accusations. Peter was the man in which God said in the person and work of Christ, I will build my church upon you, Peter. Why does he say that? Because he is going to build his church on a cloud of witnesses who, yes, aren't perfect. Yes, are still sin-tainted, but men who are faithful to God. That was his character. And, and, the, and the fourth thing that I think we need to observe here is that you know, we're not planting just any old churches. We're planting churches that are led by elders. The same thing must be true. We can't just take any old man to be an elder, but we must understand that men who meet the qualifications of being an elder have a quality of spiritual life to be an elder an elder will be the leadership in which God blesses. Will be the leadership in which God blesses. In this wild, godless world in which Titus will be planting these churches and setting into order these churches, he needs to have devout, godly men to stand against the test 
of the pressures that will exist in their local context. Not only the immorality, but also the idolatry. They must be able to stand firm for the faith, teach what is true, rebuke what is contrary to it. And as they do that, the Lord will bless it. But you think, well, how in the world can Titus, how is Titus supposed to see who are these men? Is he just supposed to sit back? Is he supposed to just sit back and handpick? No. The last observation, and this is what I want to leave you with, is that there are determinations almost in stages, you might say. First, the elder must feel an internal call. I feel called to be in the ministry of eldership in the local church, whether it be teaching or ruling. I must aspire to this office. I must desire to serve in this way. It's an internal thing first, but then it's an external thing. The church must also affirm my internal call. You know, when Pastor Don and myself are going through ordination exams, that's one of the first things that we're asked. We're asked, how do we come to know the Lord Jesus, our testimony? We're asked, why do we feel called to ministry? Internal call. And then thirdly, we're saying, now how has the church affirmed that call? And that is what the external realm of this calling is all about. As we look at these qualifications, you might say, in and of yourself, I am qualified and I desire, but if the church cannot affirm that, you cannot be an elder of the church. If the church can't nominate you and elect you, that's how we use our affirmation of the church, then it is not your time for you to be in this office of elder within the local church. And we must humbly submit to that. And so as we think about the way in which Titus is to plant churches, to appoint men to the office of elder here within the local church, don't, as members, sit back and say, well, that's all the the pastor's job. Or that's all the elder's jobs. No, it's our job as well to be prayerfully considering, even in this time that we just got through nominating elders and deacons, to prayerfully consider those men and who are they, are they qualified? Are they qualified for office? Really consider that and pray over it. And if so, may they be appointed to office by the will of the Almighty God, by the affirmation of the local church, and may God bless the church. Because the first mark of a healthy church, the foundation that is found upon the blueprints of the healthy church is a church that is led well, organized well, led well by the godly men who are the elders of the local congregation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to your word. And we pray, Lord, that we would be Uh, very diligent in our affirmation of the men who serve us as elders and deacons within the local church context. Lord, we pray uh, that you would raise up men who not only seek to to serve you uh, as elders within the local church and as deacons within the local church even, but men who are really quality, uh, with real quality walking with you in, in faithfulness. And so, Lord, let us uh, be led by them, served by them. 
Uh, we pray for the elders that we have now. Would we take great joy in leading from the front lines, fighting against the wickedness that abounds, teaching what is right, rebuking what is false, so that we might see your blessing uh, and so that we might see your church increase. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.